catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Heard Tell Show, thank you so much for giving us once again the most precious thing you have your time and rejoining us as we once again try to do what we always do turn down the noise of the news cycle get to the information we actually need to discern the times we live in a little bit better and understand what's going on around us thank you so much for being with us once again we're going to have krista kafer on today uh she'll be our guest denver post columnist also does some teaching communications major we've had her on many many times she's out in denver colorado we love talking to her we're going to talk about tipping and because tipping crosses a lot of streams. It talks about the labor shortage issues. It talks about culture. It talks about our society. It talks about how people work and earn. A lot of cross streams when it comes to tipping. We're going to discuss that with Krista Kafer on the program today. Also going to go up to Alaska. Going to talk about how that bright green future everybody wants with electric vehicles and such. That's all great and all, but you're going to have to find some way to mine all the rare earth minerals in a fight up in Alaska over a mine that's being proposed to get some of those minerals is putting the Biden administration in a bind between what it knows it needs to do and some of the rhetoric it's had before. We'll talk about that here in a minute. We'll end on a good note like we always do. In this case, a wonderful little story about people getting kids ready with one of those basic things about going back to school that gets overlooked very easily. If you've not been a parent or maybe it's been a while since you were a parent or maybe your parent just never thought of, great little charity story we'll talk about at the end of the program to round things off. But let's start with kind of um, something that's big news in a small segment of society, but it's a segment of society that has outsized influence. I'm going to talk about Twitter for a minute. Now, granted, I'm on Twitter way too much. Twitter is the main platform that we've been using that got me into writing, got me into doing media. That all started with me getting a Twitter account. That was the first social media account I'd ever had in my entire life at let me see, I was 36, 37 years old at the time. So I'm not huge on social media. I was a late comer to it for a lot of reasons, but I've been on Twitter for a while and that's been my primary, not just social media account, but also for me to do things like hard tell for like my writing. And a lot of other people do that. The reason I did Twitter though, is because the access it gives you, you can directly access other writers, other media personalities, people like that. That was the secret sauce of what made Twitter click. Anybody could talk to anybody. That's why the verified system was so important. I don't want to beat it to death, but since Elon Musk bought Twitter, things have not been going really, really great. Now, we could spend weeks talking about that whole deal. He overpaid for Twitter by somewhere in the range of $30 billion. Let me repeat that. He paid $44 billion for Twitter. Twitter was valued at only about 12 to $15 billion, so he vastly overpaid for it. So just on a business sense, this deal and the backers he got from the Saudis and other places, they're never going to get that money back. We have the verification mess where they got rid of the verification system, which was the secret sauce of Twitter because they were verified. You know it was that person or that person's team, and you could talk to them directly. That's been moved. The blue check change to a paid thing, and now more and more features are getting taken away from users, including now DM, direct messaging, has been limited. That's going to be driving people crazy and driving people away at all. And you're not going to sell enough $8 subscriptions to make up for the people you're losing and the massive amount of ad revenue. Plus, Elon Musk did one thing you don't want to do with your business. He made it personal to a lot of people, including me. I'm just on a point of principle. I'm not going to pay for Twitter. That's why we did some other things. That's why we started doing the Substack. So you can find this program on other platforms. We're going to be working to move into some other platforms as well. We already are on YouTube and all the podcasting platforms. We're looking at some other things. Long story short, a lot of people are in the same boat 
that I am, that we are. Twitter's gone and become unstable, and now he's killed it off altogether, at least the branding. He announced that they're going to call Twitter X. It's going to be the X app. Now, let's back up for a second. Elon Musk has been ex- obsessed over the X app for many, many years. When he original his original company, PayPal, he wanted to make that X, and that went so well that they one of the reasons he basically got sent out of his own company, PayPal, and it went to Peter Thiel, and everybody knows how that went from there. He's been obsessed over this X app for a long time. Some of the quotes from them are very disturbing. You can listen to interviews. I'm going to link to a few of them in the Substack notes, uh, herdtel.substack.com. You can also get it in the show notes of your podcasting platform, except for Heights. What he wants is for it to be the quote, and this is a direct quote, the everything app. You can listen to interviews where he's talking about wanting to make this X app, what used to be Twitter, in charge of all your finances. And he's talked about it being half of the globe's finances running through this app. It's going to be the everything app. Folks, maybe it will be. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm just, you know, small town person. He's a genius in a lot of areas. The SpaceX stuff is genius. It's a thing of vision that he's hammered through. Tesla has been very successful, although I have some issues with it. He's made it successful. Because you're a genius in one area does not make you a genius in all areas. And Elon Musk is now in a space where more than ever before, more than when he made the bulk of his wealth, he's a public figure. And his public persona is starting to hurt his businesses. Unbranding Twitter is a massive mistake. Twitter is actually a really small piece of the social media landscape. Depending on which estimate you want to work off, pre-Elon Musk's buy, because that changed a lot of things, especially advertising, about 23% of American adults have active Twitter accounts, only 23%. To compare that, the Facebook account numbers are in the 70s and low 80s, depending on the year. Worldwide, worldwide, only about 4% of all the people on earth have access to Twitter, either because they've got the app or whatever. Twitter is a very small portion of the social media game. However, it had outsized influence because of who was on it, because of the verification system. A lot of reporters, a lot of media people, a lot of famous people, especially the media folks, they could all talk to each other. They could have back channels. And when there was a breaking event or something, you could get a massive amount of information from a lot of different sources all in one place on Twitter. That's all going to be gone now. The problem with something like the X app, and why I don't think it's going to be successful, besides the fact that Elon has made a lot of this a referendum on Elon himself personally, which is never going to work out well, and now we have the reporting on some of the influencers he's chosen to reward because they're publicly going public with, hey, Twitter's paying me to be on Twitter, and a lot of them are more of the right-wing and, frankly, not very good actor and good-faith accounts. The problem with this everything app is if you're doing everything, there's an old saying, you're not doing anything particularly well. He wants to do video on Twitter. I can do video better on other streams, especially short videos like they're talking about. People that are already on TikTok aren't going to stop using TikTok to just use Twitter. People on YouTube are not going to stop doing that just to use Twitter. He's talking about finances. Let me put this as bluntly as I can. Has there been anything in the Elon Musk reign at Twitter That makes me think, oh, they're really put together. They're really buttoned up. They have great leadership. They have great vision. Let me trust them with a big chunk of my money. The way Elon has conducted himself and the way Twitter has started to, I'm not exaggerating, fall apart and not work very well for people like me who actually conduct business on it, I don't want to give him $8. I'm sure not going to give him any kind of control over my finances, When my DMs don't work and when your platform don't work and you're putting rating restrictions unless you pay for more, why in the world would I give you access to my money? I think they have gone the wrong path with this, and it makes me sad. I've really enjoyed Twitter a lot, not because of the platform, because of the people I met. And a lot of those really good people I like, a lot of them feel like me. They're kind of getting fed up with it. I don't think Twitter's going to die and go away or anything like that. I do think it's going to eventually wind up in bankruptcy because there's no way they're going to make enough money to pay off the loans that they took out to pay for this thing and pay back the investors. But it, Twitter, as we know, it really is truly dead, not just because he changed the branding. There's a lot of people are going to start trickling out to other platforms. We're going to have to go other places. Twitter used to be a one-stop shop for information from a lot of people that was verifiable in a quick manner and you got it instantly. And when you're going to make it an everything app, 
the one thing Twitter did better than anything, and even though only that small percentage of people knew about Twitter, the name recognition of Twitter was in the high 80%. Everybody knew what Twitter was. You've gotten rid of that, and you've gotten rid of the one thing Twitter really did well that nobody else could do. Hope it works out for y'all folks at Twitter or X. I doubt it will. And it makes me sad because I've really enjoyed Twitter. and I've been a big fan of it. But this X stuff, that ain't going to get it done. More Hurt Tell right after this. Ah, oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we got to have a little bit of a grown folk talk about things like the environment and the bright green future a lot of folks want us to have and how fast we get there and how you get there. And how you get there is actually through a road through a remote part of Alaska. No, seriously, this is something we've got to talk about. It's a Washington Post piece um, about the mining up in Ambler, Alaska, if they do any of it. Let me just read from the piece and then we'll talk about it. But overarching, what I want to focus in on this is there's things folks want. They want a cleaner environment. They want better technology. They want this green future. But to get to there from here, we require some real world stuff. It's one of the reasons I'm glad before I got into politics and doing media stuff. I actually come from transportation background. That was my trade for many, many years. And that's a very honest business. You have to get X product to Y destination for Z amount of money in whatever amount of time. It either gets done or it doesn't. And I think that's a good background for me as I started to approach policy and politics and things like this, because you can either get it done or you can't. And this is one of those stories where you got to talk about the idea of what everybody seems to want to do and how you actually get it. Washington Post, uh, the Ambler Range in Alaska. This has got some beautiful photography, by the way. Uh, the photographer's name is Bonnie Joe Mount. Just wanted to do a shout out for them. Because look, Alaska is one of the most beautiful places on earth. This is worth reading just for the photos. But anyway, from the peak of a mountain here, reading from the Washington Post, you can see the past and possible future of one of the largest protected parks on earth. It's the Brooks Range, roughly 50 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Sweeping green and golden ridgelines tower over lush valleys which give way to wide glacial blue rivers. The landscape is completely undeveloped. There's no roads or infrastructure in sight. Looking east is the gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve. Looking west is the Kubik Valley National Park. And looking straight down is the potential site of an open pit mine. There's roughly 7.5 billion, with a B, worth of copper under this mountain that the mining venture Ambler Metals wants to extract, which could help build the wind turbines and batteries needed to address climate change. But that bounty, and others like it across the United States, has created a dilemma for Washington. President Biden, again, we're reading from the Washington Post. We will link to this in the show notes, especially on the Substack. President Biden wants more domestic mineral production to support his climate agenda but his aides are struggling to find domestic mine sites that don't risk damaging wildlands and sacred national treasures. To reach the minerals here would require a 211-mile road through the heart of this Arctic expanse. It would cross 11 major rivers and hundreds of streams breaking apart unspoiled tundra and the migratory path of tens of thousands of caribou. 26 of those miles would carve through gates of the Arctic Park, sending giant haulers and other industrial trucks through one of the country's most remote national parks and preserves. The proposal has led to eight years of bureaucratic wrangling and political pressure from environmentalists to kill it. Because it crosses federal land, the Biden administration must decide the road's fate. Dirk Nikich, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this name, a bush pilot who's been flying over the Brooks Range for decades, says it's hard to grasp the region's beauty without seeing it from on high. You take off and you fly for hours and see mountains extending on and on and river valleys untouched, he said, and said it would be, quote, devastating if a truck route were to cut through it. Quote, it's not just this one road. It's going to be all the spur roads that go off to the mine. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. For now, this mountaintop is not reachable. It is only reachable by helicopter, and it boasts just a small platform the size of an office cubicle. A drill deep in the earth 
explores the metal and minerals below. They're talking about a core drill out here, by the way. But if the Ambler project becomes operational, much of the mountainside would be shorn and scooped out to reach the minerals underneath to sell on the global market. Cal Craig, the environmentalist, the environmental and permitting manager, excuse me, for the mining company, said he can understand why some might be nervous. He himself decided to take this job after being captivated by the beauty of the landscape, which he first viewed in a picture. Even so, he added, quote, the potential of the district is immense, continuing his quote. It's so easy to just think all this stuff sort of exists, said Craig, who works for the Ambler Metals, the joint venture of the two companies that want to mine the site and others nearby for copper, zinc, and lead. But it comes from somewhere. It's easy to think this stuff all just sort of exists, but it comes from somewhere. That's the quote. You can read the rest of this piece. We're going to link to it. Look on the Substack, substack hertel.substack.com, and read the full piece. And I'm also going to have some notes on there. I'm going to add to this. This stuff comes from somewhere. As electric vehicles and electric cars and things like green energy become more and more popular and more and more prominent in society, we have to have a conversation about where these things come from because they're like, well, we're going to get rid of all the fossil fuels and just go to electric cars and their batteries. Okay, but the batteries come from somewhere. And the batteries, especially the current generation, not what we think might be coming down the road, the ones that exist today in the year of our Lord 2023 require massive amounts of rare earth minimal minerals like what we're talking about here those minerals have to come out of the ground via mining not just a little bit of mining massive mining heavy duty industrialization of very remote areas to where these things are now that's just the reality of it if you want a green future it's going to require a massive amount of mining you can already go look on the reporting now about the zinc mines in places like africa and elsewhere, and the abuse of the people who are mining those places because people are just coming in and getting them because it's almost like a gold rush. A lot of child labor, a lot of abused workers, a lot of really bad environmental practices at these mine sites. So the Biden administration has done something that's put them in a bind. They intuitively know, as any responsible government would know, that these rare earth minerals need to be mined as much as possible in the United States if we have them, because that keeps us from having to get them from somewhere else, paying more and also losing control of the production process and the mining process. Now, we have plenty of mining issues in America. I'm a West Virginian. You do not have to convince me of this. I can drive home and just look at the scars on the mountains. I grew up, my friends had dads that mined. I'm pretty aware or well of how these things get abused. However, the regulatory might of the United States and the way our government runs, especially in the new age with media and other things, you're gonna have vastly more and vastly better regulation and control over these mining efforts if they are in the United States. Not to mention, you're not gonna be beheld into other countries, especially places like China, who is in a headlong rush to lock up these sorts of rare earth minerals in other parts of the country. Over and over and over again, we need to stop and not just talk about big picture pie in the sky stuff. That bright green future that a lot of environmental minded people want, and there's nothing wrong with wanting that, is going to require two massive things that we do not have right now that we would have to get to work on immediately that they're not going to like. Number one, you're going to have to get these rare earth minerals. And number two is you're going to need a much better power grid than what we have right now. We do not have the power grid to have all electric vehicles. We do not have the power grid to get rid of fossil fuels right now. It's just a fact. And if you try to do it before we're ready, it's going to be the poorest and most vulnerable among us that get hurt on it. And it's going to be the poorest and most vulnerable in other parts of the world that are going to get abused by other countries and these companies mining without the regulatory power of the United States to make sure it's done in a safe and environmentally friendly way. I know folks want to just say, let's not have anything bad environmental happen ever. That's just not reality. I know people say, well, this is unspoiled land. There's a lot of it up there. We can probably spare a little bit to run a road here and there and do some mining. I hate when I go home to my beloved West Virginia and see the remains of mountaintop removal mining. Heck, it's not even mining, just timber cutting. They clear cut the woods I grew up hunting with my father in and playing in that's right beside of up yonder. It was clear cut for development almost 25 years ago now. And then they found out they couldn't develop it because of the rock base under it. They couldn't sink septic and other water lines in it. And it's set in barren since. And it's embarrassing. And every time I go up the driveway up yonder, I have to see it. It hurts me. I don't like it. However, 
Human progress requires trade-offs. And we need to start having adult conversations about where these trade-offs are going to be. If you want to have that green future, you're going to have to dig rare minerals up in the earth. If we don't do it, somebody else does it. And they're probably not going to do it as well as we will. We'll link to the whole piece. We'll do more Herd Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, favorite of ours. She's our Western correspondent because she's out there in beautiful Denver, Colorado, up there in the Rocky Mountain High. Chris uh, Caver. She is an opinion columnist for the Denver Post. Also does a lot of radio, did a whole week's worth of radio when you need to go listen to. Did a great job with that. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Great. It's uh, It's hot here, but at least it's dry heat. Denver's weird weather-wise. People told me that when I went out there, and then we went out there in the fall, and it was like, it was those autumn 75 days, but it's at altitude. So it's just 75 is actually just almost chilly, beautiful weather. And they're all like, you got to get out of here by Monday. And Monday it was like, it went down in the sixties. And then the next day after that, it poured the snow. The weather out there is just bizarre. That's Colorado. Yeah. It's crazy. And it changes fast up at altitude, doesn't it? It certainly does. But yeah, beautiful days right now. And I can actually cool my house with a, with a swamp cooler, evaporative cooler, which you can't use out east uh, because the air is already too humid. Yeah, but the uh, North, cool. Carolina house, North Carolina house today, it's 98% humidity with no wind. Um, just brutal stuff. You do not want to have a swamp cooler. You already got one outside. Uh, you wrote a piece on tipping. I love talking about this because tipping is one of those things where it's a lot of big policy things and a lot of economic things and a lot of cultural things, but it's something we do every day and we never actually think about it. So what got you talking about tipping? Because that goes to the labor crisis. It goes to wages. It goes to economic. Boy, this just crosses all kinds of streams, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I don't think I would have actually thought about it, even though like a lot of Americans, I'm kind of irritated by you know, this idea that we have to tip on everything now. Now, I, I used to be a tipped employee. I, I worked at Domino's Pizza for years, delivering pizzas. I was a waitress at one point. So, you know, I think it's very important to, to tip your servers. But back in the day, it was like it was kind of a standard 10%. It was, was food-related or if you got your hair cut or maybe if you got a massage, that's when you tipped. But now it's like up to 20%. And the guy at the Starbucks who just hands you a cup of brewed coffee – once a 20% tip on top of a $6 drink. I, I think people are experiencing a kind of tipflation or tip guilt, this idea that I have to tip everyone everywhere. And so it's, it's frustrating. And then you wonder, yeah, at what point does a tip just become a surcharge? It, it, I think a lot of people are, are thinking about this. The technology part of that you mentioned, Starbucks, they hand it through the window and you get a pick not calling anybody out, but I've seen them where they don't ask. They just hit the buttons and I know exactly what they're doing. Like, gee, I wonder which button they hit. It also, <laughs> things like a restaurant. Um, I just ate at a place Sunday. Somebody who's, you know, one of my non-kid kids, you have some of those in your life, working her first job, wanted to tip pretty good. I had to ask, like, do you guys split tips? How does this work? She's like, oh, well, I'm the hostess, so I get this percentage off of this. And she explained it to us and then we, you know, reacted accordingly. Not everybody does this differently. There's no set way of doing it, but we do have to acknowledge tipping has been exploited by, especially in the restaurant industry, as a way to keep wages down for a long, long time. There could be some overcorrection here, but then there's also that technology component you just mentioned where it's like, I think there is some of these companies have just figured out like, hey, here's a way to get some free money. It is, and it feels like a surcharge. And and how this all came up is that we've got this very unique restaurant, Casa Bonita, in Denver, and uh, reopened by the the South Park guys after they refurbished it. They made an executive decision that they were going to go with no tips um, and have all of their workers make thirty dollars an hour. And it made sense for them because you pre-order the food, so there was some ambiguity: who should I tip? Should I tip? And now it's it's very clear when you know no tips you pay up front and you know it's more expensive than it used to be 
it is what it is. But I like the clarity because I feel like we're all at the situation where we're trying to figure out. One of the reasons that I kind of resent giving extra money to the barista is baristas generally are paid like regular employees versus a waitress who probably makes half that that base wage um, with the expectation that tips go on top. And so I, I think what people really want now is just clarity. Who should I tip? When should I tip? I think we would miss tipping if we just got rid of it altogether because I have to admit, I like tipping the gal that does my hair. I think she does a good job. We have a nice relationship and it kind of feels good, even though she's part owner of the tiny little stylist place, it feels good to put money on top of that because I just really like her. Am I willing to give that up just so that we have some clarity and fair wages all around? Maybe. Let's slow down though, because people are going to go, wait, wait a minute, they're paying $30 an hour at Casa Bonita. Um, you need to clarify <laughs> for folks that don't know what this is. Calling Casa Bonita a Mexican restaurant is kind of like calling your corner furniture store Ikea. That's the gap we're talking here, right? Is that a good comparison for people? This place is just out of control, big and over the top. And it's 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 a beloved institution in Denver. You go to Denver, everybody talks about it. It was closed the last time I went to Denver, so we haven't got to go yet. But just explain to people what to, this is like an institutional place. So it's not just that number or $30 an hour. When you say that about that place, everybody knows it. And that's what made it such a talking point. It's true. And then, of course, you also have the South Park guys buying it. But so it's this it looks like a big uh, Spanish hacienda. It's Pepto, Pepto pink, um, Pepto abysmal pink. So it's, you know, it stands out. It was built the time that you had all of those theme restaurants. Now, we don't have theme restaurants as much now, but back in the, the 60s and 70s, Denver had a whole bunch of, of theme restaurants. You could go to the White Fence Farm and have a home-cooked dinner on this, you know, farm-like place. There were, it was a place with a big organ grinder that, with a clapping monkey and, and black and white films. There were all these, like, really neat theme restaurants, which we really don't have anymore. And the one that kind of remains, oh, and the spaghetti factory as well. Uh, but we have this Casa Bonita. Well, I, it, it was featured in a South Park episode. So when it went up for sale, those you know the, the South Park guys, they bought it and they refurbished it. I guess they put millions of dollars in it because as I think all of us who ate there can attest, it hadn't actually been fixed up for, I don't know, maybe four decades. <laughs> I think they still, I'm not even sure the decor had been dusted it 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 was looking a little grim the last time i was there but it was always cliff diving into this big pool you know mexican food a a cave of doom that you would kind of go you know pirate's cave and you would go in there and be you know skeletons which have fallen apart because they were decades old but it was it's like an experience um it used to be kind of like shabby cool experience because everything was kind of broken (laughs) you know the arc happy games in the arcade didn't work and the food was kind of uniformly terrible. Now I guess the food is better, but they still have all the attractions. So it's sort of the new and improved Casa Bonita. And that's part of why I think this whole tipping thing came to my attention was there were articles about Casa Bonita and this this changeup, which I, I think was a good choice. You just touched on a big part of this is the ownership decided we're gonna do this. We're gonna have clarity. Yeah. In the service industry, and part of this, we got to acknowledge here too, one thing COVID did was it put a spotlight on the service industry because those people just got screwed left, Mm. right, and center by everybody. The service industry where you're going to see a lot of the tipping stuff and gratuities and things like this, there's, there's not a lot of uniformity. Like you said, there's not a lot of clarity on tipping, although some places will have it on the menu or whatever. The reaction to this is, well, we need to have it uniform. The problem is, this is all individually leadership-based. I don't know that you can have uniformity because I really don't know that you want the government to start regulating tips. That sounds like something that's going to be a problem, and that's the first thing I've seen a lot of people call for. Is like, well, of course, this gets lumped into the minimum wage argument and all that stuff. This stuff isn't one-size-fits-all, and if you start trying to regulate it one-size-fits-all, you're probably going to wind up making it worse so what do we do besides just voting with our feet and our wallet and our hard-earned dollars? I, I'm with you. I don't want the government weighing in. They'll just make things worse like they most often do. I, 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 you know, I think it is going to be a place-by-place thing, and I think it's going to be a personal choice. I've basically stopped tipping on 
orders in, in which it's not really a, a service experience. Um, you know, if you sit down at a restaurant, somebody's coming up to your table multiple times, getting drinks, bringing your food, chatting with you. That's a situation where I really feel it's very appropriate to tip 20%. If I go to the movie theater bar, to, you know, to carry a, a, a glass of overpriced wine into the movie in a plastic cup, you know, the last time I did that, I paid $18 for a cup of wine that I don't think the bottle was more than 10 bucks. So I, and then I was have to put a tip on top of that. That's kind of where I, I mean, it, it's, I feel funny about it. Yeah. Cause it feels weird to say no and to hit that no button. But I, I think if it's just something that's being handed to me, I'm not going to tip anymore. Um, if it's something where there's an ongoing service component, of course, I'm going to tip. Um, it, it's, you know, especially since there is a wage issue there, they're counting on those tips. Here's where I'd like some clarity, though. If I get a massage, it's customary to tip the person who gives the massage. If I get Botox, though, is that medical? Should I tip that person? I, I You know, there's, there's just all this ambiguity, and I think it's up to us and the different stores, restaurants, uh, you know, massage places to, I guess, give us some sense of clarity. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Krista Kay for joining us. Do we not talk about the service sector industry correctly? I know you do other stuff like radio and things like this and you teach, you teach communications. You're a communications expert for lack of a better word. We don't talk about the service industry correctly. Do we, whether it's economically, the cultural impact, because these are the people we see every day, literally every day, whether it's a grocery store. I wrote about this too during COVID Across the street, the two schools, the elementary school and the high schools across the street from the grocery store and the little shopping center. Same people every day in one, but everybody goes over there, everybody going to die, but everybody's over here. You could see the cultural clash of that. And you had the teachers who aren't allowed to work because the health crisis, but it's the same people at the grocery store. We never really dealt with that part of all this, have we? We don't really know how to talk about the service industry, appreciating these folks you know, obviously the service industry isn't going to pay like the top scientist at NASA, but at the same time, I don't think we have an appreciation and we haven't figured out how to talk about the economic and cultural impact of a service sector that is a huge part of the economy that people didn't really pay attention to pre-COVID. And I think some of this is the hangover that now is like, oh, well, we know how important these people are and we all saw them get really, really screwed. Let's just call it what it was. Now we want to tip them. That's part of this conversation, isn't it? I think so. And also it's because the, so the, the service sector is going to continue to grow um, as we have 
you know, we're, we're a wealthy nation. We can now afford to pay people to do things that we would have already done ourselves. You know, we pay people to walk our dogs, for example. Um, you know, I've been paid, I, you know, I, I take one-off services. Somebody paid me to design their, their landscape, um, you know, and I, and I gave them some help in, in that process. I think we're, a lot of folks, whether you're Gen X, Millennial, or Z, chances are you have a bunch of different jobs. Um, I, I say chances are more so than the generation uh, boomers. You know that was one job for life, basically. Uh, I, I do probably I do all kinds of stuff. I do estate sales for people sometimes. I do <laughs> landscape design, teach some. I do a lot of editing. I love doing editing. Um, so I'm kind of a a Swiss army knife with a certain number of tools on it. And it's interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. How do we pay people? How do we treat people? Um, is, is interest, it's an interesting subject. And it's a subject I think that not only because of COVID, but because we are going into a deeper, deeper service economy uh, with fewer factory jobs and fewer of those kinds of jobs and more services, including recreational entertainment services, also medical services. Um, it, it's just, an, you know, it's an interesting day. I, I've, I've even paid, been paid to like organize somebody's house for them. Um, you know, rewind the clock 20 years ago, like nobody did. It's just interesting. Yeah, Krista K for joining us. I think there's something happening culturally and politically here with, and the service I think the service sector is kind of the leading edge of this stuff because, again, that's where you're going to see economic trouble first, right? Cash registers start don't ring quite as often. Stores aren't as crowded. We know the reverse of that, too, with the toilet paper stuff, right? You get runs on things, <laughs> things yeah. like that. Oh, the dream. service sector is such a cutting edge of what's happening economically, culturally, politically. Look, I, I, I'll be honest. I've wrote pieces off what I overhear standing in line at the grocery store. Because you just hear people talking or at Starbucks or just, you know, you what are normal people that aren't chronically online like us? What are they talking about? I find the service sector to really be this kind of area where we don't pay attention to it. But we all like no matter how rich you are, unless you're just having everything delivered to your house. Everybody from Porter Rich is dealing with this service. sector. It's really the one part of the economy and the mm -hmm. one part of culture and the one part of politics everybody's in that pool to some extent. So why don't we pay more attention to it? Because we could probably do more there because you know how we do. We all focus on all these outliers instead of this thing where, well, wait a minute, everybody's involved in this. Maybe we should take some of our lessons from this big pool of people instead of this crazy outlier, you know, in New Jersey or wherever. That seems like we just don't pay enough attention to this, do we? Yeah, it is interesting. Like I, I do think we're having a, a lot of discussion on what jobs should pay, um, but, you know, in markets, it's supply and demand. It, you know, nothing is really worth anything innately. And I'm talking about anything, both a product or a service. Obviously, a human being, a, a, you know, has immeasurable worth, um, every single human being. But certain jobs pay certain amounts, certain products get certain amounts, and those amounts are determined both by demand and supply. So, you know, I, I think there's that kind of economic complexity to it, but then there's also the human complexity of making sure that people, you know, the person that works at the grocery store has a, uh, you know, a, a decent a decent wage and an ability to support a family. Um, we've also got the issue of automation coming in in some some situations where politicians have said, okay, we're going to raise up all of these these minimum wages. Uh, to a certain level, if that level is not tenable in the marketplace, those shops and stores are more likely to turn to automation. And so you'll see situations where you order your own food um, and then maybe somebody just brings it to you so they don't have to have as, as, as many staff. So there's a, there's a lot of complexity to this. I will say on a human level, if, if you ever see somebody mistreating a waiter, a waitress, somebody at a shop, um, I think it's important to step in um, and, and say, excuse me, you don't need to be treating that person like that or offer to go and get a manager for the person who's being berated because nobody should have to be abused verbally by another person. It's just, it, 
the adults in the room need to step up and say, excuse me, you need to stop to the person that's doing the abuse. Yeah, waitressing and customer service jobs are public-facing customer service jobs. i got to update that. Are some of the hardest jobs. You know who's got a really hard job now, and I've noticed it more and more? The person that's in charge of watching the self-checkouts. I see those people getting oh, yeah. more unfair abuse than any. And I'm a, I'm a, look, I've come around. I used to hate them. Now I love them. Now I don't even want to go to the other ones. I'm a self. It, it's funny when new people roll into my grocery store that I go to pretty much daily. I was, I was like, hey, come here. Let me show you how to use this thing real quick. Cause I know more about it than they do. And I know how to turn it off. So don't talk to me. I don't like machines that talk to me. That's first. They, yeah, I turn them off too. I had a new employee that she's like, how'd you turn that off? I, I can't stand listening to all this. I was like, oh, you just push this button. That person, I've, I've watched that job that did not exist five or six years ago, really, to any extent. I've watched that evolve to one of the hardest jobs I see daily now is that self-checkout person as far as just taking abuse. It's not, it's not their fault that the banana was not properly labeled or whatever. No, they're not there to go get your one more kumquat, that, you know, whatever the craziness is. That's where I've seen a lot of abuse. And that's a job that didn't even exist for the previous generation because there was no such thing as self-checkout. And it's just one of those examples of society changed, the technology evolved, and now, you know, waitressing is still tough. Now that person's got a real hot button job and it didn't even exist before. And now that's the one I watch. What you're talking about is like, okay, are they abusing that person? Because that's a tough job. It is. And a lot of these places are understaffed, at least here in Denver. So you have one waitress working an entire floor. And I do think it's important not only to treat that person well and to tip that person well, but also as needed step in if somebody's being nasty because it i get people are frustrated we're all frustrated at different times over different issues but no one has the right to treat another person as though they they are beneath them um this is wrong Okay, I got to ask you one political question before I let you go. I find Colorado um, one of the real fascinating states over the last few years. There's a couple places I kind of watch to see what's going on big pictures, places like Atlanta. Colorado's another one of them because y'all are interesting. You've got a little bit of everything out there. You've got everything from uh, Governor Paulus, openly gay Democrat, to Lauren Bobbert, um, all right there in one little <laughs> yeah. area. That's quite the spectrum. What's the feeling out there right now? Because you're and and I don't think I'm talking out of school here. The state GOP is kind of a mess right now. They're having a lot of fighting. Well, I'm, I don't want to spend 45 minutes on Hot it. But it mess. It's not good. They're not doing real great. This this state. Is it a purple state? Is it a bellwether state? There's so much going on there that kind of microcosms the national. I find it really interesting. You're there, though, for the outsiders just looking in. What should they be watching in Colorado over the next oh, 14, 15 months of this election? Um, you know, it used to be a bellwether state. It used to be a purple state. It is now a solidly blue state. It's no different than California, um, Maryland, Massachusetts. There are conservative pockets, but because the front range is so divided, it's so heavily blue. And front range, Colorado is basically sort of a, I don't know, we'll say almost half flat, which people don't expect, but the eastern part is completely flat. Then you hit the mountains, and of course, that's, uh, you know, there's, there's mountains there. Along the front range is where most of the population lives, right at that borderland. And, and we've had so many folks coming in from, Illinois, California, and other places that fled high tax states, but these people are solidly Democrat. So it really did turn the state blue. Then you have complete idiocy within the party, which caused a lot of normal Republicans to leave the party. The party, party, uh, state party is a complete hot mess full of conspiracy theorists and, and lunatics. And so it, it turns off normal people who are like, you know, there's actually a lot of moderates in this state that are uncomfortable with extremes on both sides and Republicans cannot recapture some of those, those 
voters until the uh, the whole Trump conspiracy theory thing goes away. It's going to be Colorado will be blue for the foreseeable future. I say this as somebody who's a Republican, so I I wish you could go back to being purple. Yeah, talk radio is doing really well out there, though, because those folks, they still listen to their media, don't they? Krista Kafer, love having you with us. Let everybody know where they can keep up with you. You, of course, write for the Denver Post. You do other stuff. You also have a sub stack where you re-up a lot of your stuff and your wonderful social media. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. So you can follow me at, at Krista Kafer. My uh, sub stack is on there. You can also, it's Krista Kafer, both with Ks. You can, I can, I about four days after I published with the Denver Post, I put that piece back up. I've also got some uh, bigger essays that are kind of interesting, but you'll need to subscribe for those. Uh, worth it. I do. Y'all should too. Chris Gaffer, appreciate your time, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, ma'am. Have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is having a versatile high quality favorite feels great but having a whole closet of them feels even better american giant puts the quality durability and comfort they're famous for into everything from t-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets and of course their legendary best hoodie ever so you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the french terry collection or the rich and polished premium slub crew tea. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, let's end on a good note, which we always try to do when we have time to. Let's go out to Horizon, Texas. Uh, this is from KTSM.com. We will link to it like we always do in the show notes, especially on the Substack. If you don't have the Substack already, hurttell.substack.com. We have all the links to everything we do in every show. And sometimes we even put a little extra notes in there. But listen to this story. Quoting the Horizon Police Department and Trend Setters Barbershop hosted an event for children of all ages to get a back-to-school haircut before the start of the 2023-2024 school year. We will be cutting hair for kids from Horizon Schools and doing charity work. It's an experience that I believe will help us both as a business and a people, Julio Roman, manager of Trendsetters Barbershop, said. I don't know if it's Roman or Roman here, but whichever, good job on you, sir. Let's call it Roman. Roman said 18 barbers donated their time on Wednesday to cut kids' hair. The event took about a month to set up through the Horizon Police Department. Quote, you always hear, you know, back to school, school supplies. You hear all this specials going on. Sometimes a haircut might be something overseen for a kid. You might put more priority on school supplies than a haircut, Heli Sierra, with the Horizon Police Department said. Once the event was set, the police reached out to the community for help with donations. With the help of social media, Sierra said over $1,000 was raised to give almost 100 kids a free haircut. With this... We're hoping we can bring out some of the families that might be a little bit tight on money or maybe running a little bit tight on time, make sure the kids feel comfortable and confident going back to school with their brand new haircuts. Families who took their kids to get a haircut told KTSM this would give their kids the confidence they need to start the school year off well. I really appreciated it, Amber Dominguez said, and they should be doing more things like this for people who don't have money and things like that, one of the students getting the haircut said. Uh, it's on the Horizon Police Department Facebook page. They actually have some videos of this. The kids had a blast with it. They were just rolling these kids through. We're going to link to the story. I like stuff like this, little community stuff. Some folks don't think about it. You want to look sharp on your first day of school. Good on them. Appreciate them. Love having some good news at the end of the program. And that's going to do it for Hertel. However you're listening, we really appreciate it. Make sure you're subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, 
However you're finding us, make sure you're subscribed and or following or whatever that platform calls it. It's always going to be free to you. None of what we do will ever cost you anything more than a click and a little bit of the most precious thing you have, your time, and we thank you greatly for doing it. Make sure you subscribe to the Herdtel Substack, herdtel.substack.com. That's the one-stop shop for everything I'm doing, writing, media appearances, new Herdtel episodes, all that's there. We're consolidating there because we have primarily used Twitter as the main messaging system that we've used for social media. With that becoming increasingly uh, volatile, let's just leave it at that. We needed something that can get something directly to you folks. Uh, the response has been amazing. Really appreciate it. We also get to do things like add notes to things. Make sure you're subscribed to the Herdtel Substack, herdtel.substack.com. That puts it right in your inbox anytime we do something. And all the content on that doesn't cost you a thing. Free subscription gets you absolutely everything involved there. If you want to support what we can do, you can do that as well. But you get everything. There's nothing paywalled, nothing like that. Also, one other quick note, the good talks, those are just the interview portions with our guests. Those come out separately than the full program. They usually come out the day or so after the program that they ran on. Be sure to look out for them. And they are also going to be on the YouTube channel. So if you want to watch the videos of those, those will be available to you. So look out for the good talks. Great thing to share with folks because it's topical. If you got a particular topic or something, you're a fan of the guests we have on, let us know and make sure you're sharing those. Make sure you follow our guests. We really appreciate their time. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again on the next Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.